You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. And our guest today is Ron Carucci, and he is managing partner and co-founder at Navalent. Uh, he's also author of, of many books, uh, most recently, Rising to Power. Uh, and he's written extensively for publications like Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and other leading business magazines and publications. And I'm really excited to have him on today to talk a little bit about leadership, where leadership goes right and where leadership goes wrong, and some of the challenges that leaders face and how we can overcome them. So with that, Ron, welcome to the program. Hey, Bruce, how are you? Thanks for having me. So why don't we talk a little bit about a little bit about your background and, and how you got into this? I know you've been working with leaders for decades, several decades, but a little bit of your background and how you got into the position of working with leaders on, on leadership, on management, and effect. Sure, go ahead. Out, out me as old. Thanks. <laughs> uh, gosh, you know, uh, I began my career in a very different part of the world and in, in the arts, mm-hmm. but changed careers. I had the fortune to realize that I bored easily in my early 20s. So I switched careers to organizational behavior and organizational psychology because I realized that I would never be bored because the story always changes every day. Yeah. I think since I was, I was a kid, I always had a natural fascination with human endeavor. You know, organizing it at scale. What would happen when people came together to get something done? Whether it was, you know, I was the kid that organized the stickball game in our neighborhood. I was the kid that organized fundraisers or block parties. Mm-hmm. I just loved the the natural phenomenon of what happens when people would cooperate and come together to work. So, began my career early inside organizations. But quickly realized that the idea of telling the truth to leaders wasn't always welcomed the way I assumed it would be when it came to getting better. And so I realized that if I was going to express my real passion for organization, it was going to have to be by not being part of one. And Mm -hmm. so I went external and started my own consulting practice and then eventually brought that to a larger firm. And 14 years ago, a couple of friends and I decided we could do it on our own. So we began Navalent. So the focus of Navalent, who do you typically work with and how do you typically help them? What does an engagement look like and and how are you, what, what kind of sort of facets of leadership and organizational change are you grappling with? Yeah, so we sort of sit at the intersection of strategy and organization and leadership. So where those three things intersect, where a strategy has been articulated or presumably articulated, but maybe not that well, <laughs> and you have to organize and you organize the assets of the organization around executing that strategy and leaders have to guide that. It's in that troika where we sit and help senior leaders, business unit presidents, CEOs, um, division leaders, or sometimes even functional leaders stand that journey up and get it going, or they've gotten themselves into a ditch and we have to tow them out. Yeah, uh, that's where we play. And we recognize that that's a it's a very systemic journey. There's no silver bullets. Typically, we may not be the first one to, in to help. Yeah. We may be following on from others who have tried things that didn't work or the organization wasn't able to metabolize the solutions. Mm-hmm. And so we begin all of our our journeys like of transformation with a really, really thorough MRI. Of the organization. Mm, interesting. And to get a real lay of the land. Every leader, of course, tells us they know what the problem is, you know, which, of course, always leads us to ask curiously, well, then if you know what the problem is, why is it not solved? <laughs> so typically, we help them say, yes, you probably know what part of the problem is. You probably have a dangerously symptomatic view of some, some aspects of it that are true, but obviously there are things you're missing or you wouldn't have called. Yeah. So usually we'll go in and get under the hood and, and with a really systemic look at how all of the organization is operating, all the stories it's telling itself about its performance or its customers or itself, 
all of the ways leaders are or are not cooperating across the boundaries of the organization, all of the technologies, the processes or the lack of them. You know, and, and typically one of the main many things we find in the mid cap world where your listeners hail from yep. is we typically find things very akin to the the hundred million dollar company trapped in the body of a $30 million organization. <laughs> so yeah, describe that in more detail. I think I know what you mean, but uh, give, well, us, so they, give us some detail. They grew, they grew, but they didn't scale, right? So yeah. it's kind of like the teenage boy wearing his dad's suit, yeah. standing there where you can hear the seams of the organization ripping apart, yeah. where they've taxed the organization design they have so far beyond its utility that they just there's, you can hear crumbling happening at the edges, and leaders don't know what to do because they're so far behind the scaling curve. They've added a lot of top-line revenue, but the cost structure has followed behind it and they bloated themselves because they didn't really think about they never took the time to stop working in the organization long enough to work on the organization yeah yeah and now they're you know there is, is a you know several thousand hamsters on wheels trying to keep things going yeah yeah it, may, it makes total sense i mean i think we're i'm constantly kind of talking with leaders about the um about the lag you know about the organizational lag that that ends up happening in those cases particularly in, in kind of high growth you know, quick growth situations where you really have to, you know, think about what what does the organization look like in six to twelve months, and how do we start putting that stuff in place now? Not how do we, you know, get get the organization where it should have been twelve months ago <laughs> today. Right. You know, right. and that, that getting ahead of that is is probably one of the biggest challenges I see for for leaders. How much do you kind of think about, or how much are you kind of diagnosing or working with leaders on kind of the the organization design versus the leadership that the leaders kind of internal state or mindset or like, I, I guess how, how much of this is, you know, what's going on in the organization versus what's going on inside the leaders themselves? So it's a, that's a fabulous question, Bruce. And, and I don't distinguish between the two. I actually mm-hmm. think both of those things are so interrelated that when you treat them separately, you actually do harm. Yeah. If you don't understand that the inner landscape of the leader is a reflection of the external landscape he's leading or she's leading in and vice versa, you can't treat them as if they're not the same. Yeah. Are they causal one way or the other or are they interplay? Is it a is it a dynamic from your point of view? They're, they're highly causal of each other. Yeah. Right. Okay. So if you have a leader who's highly neurotic and and second guesses decision making and slow and risk averse, you're going to have a culture that's the same way. If you have a governance design that does not distribute decision rights to the right places, you're going to have a leader who can't make decisions. Yeah. Right. So so you've got to look at them both as 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 inter highly interconnected. Yeah. Our code and our code language for that is, when we think about change is called we call it within between among. So you've got to diagnose change deep within the leader and their own landscape and their own narratives and how mm-hmm. they think about leadership between leaders and their colleagues between functions between you know the classic marketing, sales, supply chain, logistics, finance, and R&D, HR, and everybody between. And then you have to have among. You have to have change systemically in the culture, in the strategic understanding, in the governance processes, and the technologies. Yeah. And if you're, if you're only doing change on one or two of those, you're going to fail, right? So you've got to have change on all three simultaneously, and you've got to keep them very connected. And so often, practitioners with great intentions and, and good people go in and they, they major in one, right? So they're the, they're yeah. the coaches that do the within, the team builders that, builders that do the between, or the culture change experts that do the among, mm-hmm. and, and they leave the others to their own demise. 
and change fails. Yeah, no, it actually reminds me. So I came out of technology and I spent a lot of time on software systems and then coaching software teams and then onto companies and leadership teams around you know, software solutions. And, and one of the principles we had or, or ideas that kept coming up was if you want to understand how a piece of software is structured, is you look at the structure of the team, right? That the team, the organizational structure will be reflected in the uh, actual structure of the processes and procedures and stuff in the code. And I think that's the same true with, with the organization is that the, you know, how the team or how the organization is physically structured ends up becoming, you know, reflected in the processes, the procedures, the the way it executes the business. And and that could be for good or bad. <laughs> and oftentimes. No, it's, it's a great point. And they don't even realize the bad part of that, right? So if, yeah. I mean, an organization design is it's first and foremost an embodiment of a strategy, right? Yeah. So, you know, I can't tell you how you should be organized until you tell me what you intend to do. And it's so fascinating to me, Bruce, how yeah. often I ask leaders in the mid-cap world, tell me, tell me about your strategy. And I get all the counterfeits, right? I get the mission statement, the vision statement, the values. I get the product quota. I get the, the annual operating plan. I get the financial goals. I get the business plan they gave their PE forecast. The- <laughs> I love yeah, the forecast one. Sales forecast. I get Costco call. That's the strategy. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, that's all very interesting, but that doesn't tell me who you are. Yeah. Tell me why somebody who does what you do, why a customer would pick you over them. What is it that you do that's special, that's interesting and unique, that sets you apart from those other choices that your customers have? Yeah. And until you can tell me that, you have no strategy. And that's those are the fundamental building blocks of an organization design. And when they're not, you get your strategy and your organization so far afield that you have leaders stretching between the two to try and keep them connected, which eventually they can't do, right? Yeah. So yeah. the gravitational pull of a dysfunctional organization almost always wins. And then you could, you've seen this so many times too, you go around the, the table at the senior team level and say, what's our strategy? And you get as many different answers as you have people. Yeah, no, and that's a, that's, that is uh uh, a, a classic, <laughs> classic for discussion. I think many, many of us in this kind of organizational, you know, performance, you know, world, you know, get is. I mean, I'll, I'll have cases where we'll have a, you know, eight person leadership team, and we'll get nine different strategies <laughs> coming oh, sure. out of that yeah. discussion. And they can't believe it. They think, well, how could you know? Of course, yeah. they, each of them thinks that they're right. Yeah. And the others just need to align around them. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I think I think I would be happy if they, if each one of them thought they were right. I think I'd be happy. It's it's the ones that I get that they don't even know. They kind of make a they make a stab at it, and they they're actually not confident in their answer. You know, that's almost <laughs> even worse. Is that when they realize they don't have a strategy, and then there's a question of, well, what have we been doing for the last twelve months? Yeah, we just know. we just finished a fifteen year a fifteen year longitudinal study yeah. with more than thirty leaders on organizational honesty to find out what predicts lying what predicts people withholding the truth in an organization. And one of them was a lack of strategic clarity, that when you lack a sense of shared identity among your organization, you are three times more likely to have people withhold or distort the truth. And the line I got from from one of my interviewees was, when we don't know who we are, we make things up. So hold on, let's let's unpack that a little bit. So in the study, you found that the study was specifically looking at sort of organizational truth telling, or or give us yep. give me some more details on the study. So it was a, a fifteen year longitudinal study with mm-hmm. thirty three hundred interviews to look to, to understand the factors of beyond individual character, beyond the individual you know ethical choices. What mm-hmm. are the systemic reasons why people lie with all the truth? And yeah. one of the questions I ask leaders all the time: well, you, you know, we all have MBRs, we all have QBRs, we all have some device in our organization that gathers leaders on some periodic basis to look back at what's happened and to look ahead at what's about to happen. And I asked them, how often during your routine organizational inspection process like that, do you find yourself thinking privately during someone else's presentation, this is such bull, but of course no one ever says anything. And we all do. We all sit and listen to the sales guys or the R&D guys or the financial guys get up and blow smoke. Mm, Um, And 
it's not because they're sociopaths, right? So there must be something about the endemic system mm-hmm. that is saying this is the way you have to survive in this room right now. So I wanted to know what those were. I, I'm tired of hearing it's the culture. Mm-hmm. I want to understand what would predict if we wanted to have more honest, whole organizations. What would predict whether or not causes people to to withhold or to start the truth? And yeah. we found four factors. Okay. One of them, one of them was strategic clarity. It seems like some of that, some of that is, but I guess I want to make sure I understand the the point or the premise of this. So I guess I'm, I suspect there's a slight difference between, you know, not telling the truth and not knowing kind of how to tell the truth in terms of, I mean, I've certainly have seen organizations that, you know, someone gets up and, you know, presents something and upon later inspection, it's clear that people at the meeting had serious objections or questions, but either were, I think at some level, were, were, didn't have the tools or the ability or the frame or the process to even counter them versus, you know, they, they knew what to say, they knew how to counter them, but they didn't, they chose not to take action. I mean, do you see a difference between that situation? Absolutely not. Uh, the fact that I can explain it with your lack of skill doesn't excuse it. Yeah. There's lack, there's lack of skill. We And we control, the, in one of the dimensions in our statistical modeling, we control for psychological safety, uh-huh. uh, you know, whether or not it was improving or declining. Yeah. So there are lots of reasons why people don't do it. Okay. Uh, Got it. And, and typically they tell themselves the, the, imper- the internal narrative is it's either a waste of my time. Or it's not safe to do so. I'll get there'll be retribution. And so interesting when you ask people, well, gosh, if you're so afraid, tell me who's been fired before. Tell me who's got their <laughs> butt written when they tell the truth. You, there's no, there are no examples, right? Got it. So the the internally self-imposed narrative of it's just not safe for me to do so is just crap. Yeah. I'm so tired of hearing senior leaders. If you're at that table, it's your job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's the point that I think most most leaders get is that it, it's almost a fiduciary responsibility. If you're going to take this job and you're going to represent the company, that, that's what you do. That's your role. And it doesn't matter if your leaders, Attila, if, <laughs> if it's ten, it doesn't matter what the reasoning is. If you have a point of view that could spare your organization heartache in the future, then you're obligated to bring it up. It doesn't matter what flack you get back. It doesn't matter yeah. how how skilled or unskilled or comfortable or uncomfortable you are doing it. Those are all interesting, but not relevant if you're at that table. You know, when when, um, I have, I have people ask me all the time because it's my job. You know, people, my clients rely on me to tell them the unvarnished, difficult to hear, uh, compassionate and blunt truth about their organization. And and people ask me, how do you, how do you find the courage to do it? And and I, for me, this is not an an issue of courage. It shouldn't require courage to be truthful. It it should require compassion. I said, my biggest fear is not telling my leader that they're naked. My biggest fear is a leader coming back to me three months later when they're in a ditch saying, you knew I was naked. Yeah, exactly. You didn't say anything. Yeah. Yeah. That terrifies me far more than whatever flack I might get back by, ha- by having a hold up a mirror they don't want to look in. Because at the end of the day, I can help them avoid a catastrophe, but to know that I could have prevented a catastrophe and didn't, that's immoral. So so what are some of the other factors? So you mentioned the, the study um, looked at four, I think you mentioned four different four different factors. What were some of the other ones? Yes. So accountability. When your accountability systems are perceived to be unfair or unjust or the way they measure contribution, and I don't mean compensation, I mean just measurement of contribution as unfair, people lie to embellish their accomplishments and hide their mistakes. And when that's the case, you're three and a half more times more likely to have people lie out with all the truth. Governance structures. So when there's no place for the truth to be told, when there are no convenings of leaders where difficult, complex choices 
and difficult decisions can't be made, it goes underground. Mm-hmm. You afford it's more likely to have people lie with hope the truth. And the last, surprisingly, was cross-border wars, right? So when you have cross-departmental rivalry, mm-hmm. when you, fiefdoms, have, yeah. you are fiefdoms and silos, you're yeah. six times more likely to have people withhold or assert the truth. Because when now we have dueling truths, and when we have dueling truths, yeah. mine will prevail. Yeah. And so all up, it's it's cumulative. So all up, all in, if those four things are true about you, you are 16 times more likely to find yourself on the cover of the Wall Street Journal or New York Times in a story you never wanted to be in. Yeah, yeah. So how does one uh, kind of sort through those those potential scenarios and then tackle them in terms of actually making changes to the organization? I mean, is there is there a clear process that one can take to go through this? You know, so the the first thing is if so, let's get back to the first one. If you lack strategic clarity, be honest about it, right? If you have words that uh-huh. don't match your actions, if you have a mission statement or a value statement that people are not saying you're living by, align them. Yeah. Make sure and don't just announce your strategy. You know, embed it. Make sure every single person in your organization has a clear line of sight between what they do and who you say you are. Mm-hmm. to yourselves and your marketplace and make sure their own sense of purpose. This was the other fascinating thing in the study we found was we've heard for all, ever, you know, 70% of the workforce is disengaged, 50% have no sense of purpose, and we're buying foosball tables and free lunches to try and fix it. Yeah. The reality is people's sense of meaning gets covered up when they feel duplicitous. When they feel like they're behaving in ways that contradict who they are, they yeah. hide. So simply create a clear line of sight between the meaning they want to derive from them, the reason they're on the planet and the work they do, and you'll have everybody engaged. Mm-hmm. Secondly, design your governance structure. Make sure you distribute decision rights according to your strategy so that the right leaders are around the right tables with the right authority and resources to execute. Don't have everything rolled over the top. Don't have all pathways lead to the CEO. Mm-hmm. Don't leave everything so confused that everybody's playing the game show. Whose decision is it anyway? Um, we, we, all walk, <laughs> right? we all walk out of the meeting going, oh, yeah. this is that your decision? Who? You know, yeah. and of course that's convenient because then everybody gets to say it was mine. I get to do what I want. If you have accountability structures where nobody's giving feedback on their performance, nobody understands what they're being held accountable to. It's, it feels like it's the metric du jour, and it's a rotating effort of who, who's what yardstick's being used to beat me up today. Yeah. Fix it. And lastly, if you have rivalries at the seams, force those functions to find a way to understand their, their co-created value, right? You don't. If you have competing metrics where sales believes one thing and marketing believes another, and they're di- and they're in their natural different timelines, and you're allowing that rivalry to split what the customer experiences, fix it, right? There's something at the intersection of marketing and sales that gets created that's valuable to your marketplace that neither of those could do themselves. Yeah. Make those functions, figure out what that is, and create it, and measure them against it. Don't allow the seam, the fungus of dysfunction to grow in the seams between functions, especially if if it's something competitive. It's really something you're betting your mission on or betting your strategy on, and it's a capability those functions have to create. Don't leave it to chance, which is so often what our organization designs do. They assume that we'll we'll group everything around functional capability, and we'll assume that the higher order things like innovation at the intersection of marketing, R&D, and customer insights will just take care of itself. Yeah. Uh, Can you drive accountability? I mean, how do you, I guess, how do you create accountability across, across those different features? I mean, you put, is this about putting people in charge of that? Is it putting metrics that align people above and beyond their functional silos? Well, so it's a couple of things. First of all, um, if your organizers are organized around functions versus customers or processes or mm-hmm. regions you know, geographically, you have to recognize that those seams are a thing, right? This, yeah. So if innovation is a capability, let's use that as an example, at the intersection of R&D, marketing, and customer insights, that's, those three things are a separate thing apart from the, from the homerooms they emanate from. So, when the, what is the, so if innovation is the work that those three things contribute to, how does that work come together? How is it linked? Is it a governing process? Is it a, is it a, a product development process? 
process? Is it a, a set of metrics? It's a, probably a variety of things. But if that team isn't designed to integrate those three contributions into innovation, it's not going to happen, right? Because yeah. because when, when those people show up at that table, I'm just the ambassador from marketing. Or I'm just the ambassador from customer insights. I'm not here to innovate. But if you tell them together you're accountable for innovation and we'll measure you that way and we'll reward you that way and we'll hold you accountable for that, mm-hmm. and you create the organization, organizational mechanisms that allow them to innovate, now you've designed the scene to be something other than the sum total of the parts. So what's an example of how of a metric or of a, a process that would hold, you know, th- say those three organizations accountable for something like innovation? So, um, and I've got an article on HBR called How to Permanently Resolve Cross-Departmental Rivalries, and it, mm-hmm. and it outlines our process, our toolkit for how we do seam design, but we call it a seam startup. Okay. Um, the first thing is, the first thing you have to do is um, understand what the value is, right? So at the intersection of whether it's, you know, logistics and uh, supply chain could be cost uh, or at least and, and, and finance at uh, customer experience could be at the intersection of customer success, sales, marketing, and product development. You know, it, but whatever the whatever the muscle is, understand what that value is and what is the value that they create together. Make them define it. Then the question becomes, what are you going to measure it against, right? So, what are the KPIs? What are the capabilities you have to be good at to deliver against that? And how will you? What metrics will you all share? And that's really the key thing is share, mm-hmm. right? So, no, one of us cannot perform the other. Right. To, to these metrics, we're all held accountable. And if there are contradictions, so for example, if marketing and R&D and product development are uh, an innovation world are held accountable for a metric that that somehow conflicts with an individual marketing goal, fix mm-hmm. it. Don't allow that contradiction to exist. So you push it. So you, you make them responsible for resolving the contradictions. They, you bring them together to do that work. You don't yeah. have to be answer. You ask them how how will so how will conflicts be resolved? How will decisions get made? Who owns what decision rights about what part of the process? Um, how will you maintain trust? And what are your service level agreements? So to each other, you owe things, right? To mm-hmm. to one another, yep. complete your, what are those service level agreements and how will you agree with that? And then you sign them in blood. Mm-hmm. Well, I like this idea that it really is like the senior folks or the, the, the person above all that is really, you know, kind of the facilitator or the coach or the folks that are at the table trying to work these things out rather than the, rather than the uh, adjudicator or the, you know, the person that's solving it for them. It's the person that helping, helping them reach a solution that works for everyone and that's aligned with strategy. Well, and I think if, again, if you assume, if you if you chosen, and I think many mid caps, you know, in their fifty million to two hundred million dollar range are, are are largely geographically landlocked, so mostly their functional designs. Yeah. They might be they might be also have a, a matrix of customer segments sizes if you've begun to segment different customers at that point in mm-hmm. your maturity. But largely, there are seams not being managed, right? There are intersections of organizations and and people ability to work to cross borders or work cross functionally that are not working well, and they don't know what to do, and so they they bring in the team builders to do collaboration work. I can't tell you the number of times I get called to do workshops on collaboration for people who could collaborate just fine. There isn't anything about the the organization that would tell them to do that. So we treat it as if it's in a personal conflict or it's some kind of a competitive thing or it's a personality set of quirks when when in reality is uh, the organization is encouraging them to be at odds with each other. Yeah, they've set them up. (laughs) By design, they've set them up for conflict. Yeah. And so unless you solve at that level, you're just going to keep putting all wallpaper over, over all wallpaper and, and frustrate them. But most organizations don't understand that seams are things. They're not just the result of two functions being adjacent. 
And if you're not going to manage those seams as if they have valued, that's where all of our competitive value is delivered. It's at intersections. No one function or one group in any organization holds all the competitive value. Yeah. And so if you don't understand where that competitive, first of all, go back to the strategy issue. If you haven't defined what that competitive value is, and you've seen it before, Bruce, many haven't, Yeah. Yeah. then it really doesn't matter what that your seams because yeah. it's all going to be fungus growing in the, in the cracks. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, you're never going to have, you're never going to successfully resolve your seams without a, a set of strategic priorities and a, uh, a strategic plan. So, um, and I think all things yeah. emanate back. So, if you haven't done that work, you know, don't look at the symptoms of a dysfunction you're seeing downstream with leaders being neurotic and organizations being dysfunctional. That's way downstream from the 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 root cause of the fact that nobody knows who you really are. Yeah. So let's circle back to that. So so strategy. So I guess what is the either process or the 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 components that need to kind of be in place for a company to have develop a successful strategy? How, how do you approach the that process inside, particularly these kind of mid-market companies that are, you know, typically struggling, <laughs> struggling with this question of what, are, what really is our strategy? So uh, we have a process called strategy mapping. And everybody has different language to this. Some people call it your business model. Some people call it your, you know, your strategic imperatives. There's way too much jargon about it. But at the end of the day, the, I don't want to. I don't really care about your mission or vision statement. Those yeah. are interesting, yeah. but they don't do anything for me. I want to know what are the three or four things that differentiate you that you will be known for that you that I can look at your budget and see the investments in mm-hmm. the work that you will do that that you know for sure that gets you you put a, a dollar in five dollars comes in the door and then I want to know what are the capabilities that that support those differentiators what do you have to be really good at organizationally to do that yeah. and it starts by a, a very simple look at all the work you do most leaders uh, try and create this false sense of egalitarianism in their culture that we're, we're all created equal and they don't realize that that's a dangerous thing to do right we we divide up work in three categories competitive competitive enabling and necessary competitive work is that's the work you do that's your secret sauce it's what it doesn't matter who's doing it it's just that it's work that gets done that yeah. sets you apart from competitors it is the magic yeah that's about 15 to 20 percent of the work that's done across your organization there's another mm. category we call competitive enabling it's the work that directly supports that work it's another 15 to 20 percent of the work and then about 50 to 60 percent of your work work you do is necessary it keeps the lights on keeps you out of jail you don't have to do it better than anybody else you maximize that for maximum efficiency but Got your competitive, competitive enabling work, you maximize from optimal impact and effectiveness. Your best talent, your, all your resources that get disproportionately invested there, and that's what makes you good. And you have to keep that work separated. But yeah. too often, you walk around organizations and you see people who are mixing half their day spending doing necessary work and half their day doing competitive work, uh, at least trying to, which of course never gets done because the urgency of the necessary work always prevails over the the, the more complex work of competitive work. Mm-hmm. And so you, you you mix all that stuff together and you dilute the entire ability of your organization to compete. Yeah. So you've got you first have to sort it out and identify it, separate it, identify what makes you distinct and what you have to be good at, and then from there begin your organizational work to build on. And that includes the seams. Suggesting that the actual resource allocation, the organizational design resource allocation roles are specifically mapped to one of these three categories and and you don't want to have a, a role that is trying to do more than one. Right. Well, and in some cases, that's ideal. In some cases, of course, there are going to be some teams or groups who, who some portion of their day has a little bit of each. 
Yeah. And okay. it, but but the reality is you have to know that. So people are making trade-offs. You know, would they have discretionary time? They had ten hours in a day or eight, nine hours in a day to do their work. You know, you have to help them understand when, when you have to trade off. Always err on the side of doing the competitive work. Yeah. It's interesting because that, that was going to be my follow up is like, I think one of the challenges is particularly, you know, when you're early in that growth process, you just, you don't have the resource capacity to have fully dedicated people to some of these, to these areas. So you're, you're going to, you're going to have folks that do have, you know, allocations to the different areas. But I think it, I haven't quite thought about it this way. Well, one of the exercises I typically do with teams is we do their plan. We do their week. What does your week look like? And we design the ideal week. And it's really about time boxing and, and finding and protecting what I call a defensible calendar your your dedication to these areas and when when you've time boxed so, you know to something the strategy is like you know hell or high water you're going to spend that time on strategy and you know and that's typically where these groups fall down is that they they keep saying okay yeah this week i'm going to do five hours of strategy and you know it's friday at four o'clock and they haven't done an hour yet right and then and most of them don't even know what that means anyway yeah right yeah. So should i read my, should i do should I sit back and put my feet up on the desk and think big thoughts. Should I <laughs> yeah. a couple of articles? Should I check our financials? They don't even know what doing that work means. Because the you know, first and foremost, at the top of the house, you can't do it alone. Yeah. Right. Strategy is yeah. not a solo act. Yeah. And so, you know, the work that it takes to actually keep to work on your organization and not in it and keep things competitive, to keep things aligned, to keep, you know, if you're talking about things that are going to happen next week, you're not being strategic, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I tell executive teams, at some point, your goal needs to be that you're not talking about anything in your organization when you're together that's going to happen in the next three to six months. Yeah. If you are, you're now an operations team. That's great. Someone should do that work. Uh, but you're not this. You're not the executive team. You're not minding the future. Yeah. Uh, but so often the tyranny of the urgent draws them down into the organization, down into details they don't want to be in, down into levels of micromanagement, where they're creating all kinds of decision compression. Right. Where you, you know you you think about three intersecting pipes of an organization: a strategic system, a coordinating system, and an operating system. Your operating system is a, all your frontline folks getting stuff done. Your coordinating system is typically your middle organization who have to do all the lateral coordination across departments and your senior your strategic system is supposed to be mining the future right yeah. but when when you elevate up through those systems as your career grows and you take all that work with you which many of them do and don't let it go you create this compression where the pipe is getting squished in the middle and then you you have the classic you know information goes up decisions come down yeah reality where you've slowed the organization down you've created everybody's worst nightmare as you've gone from startup to grow up you've created the bureaucracy they all feared mm-hmm. you haven't designed for optimal performance and that's it is such a classic journey of slow death for yeah. organizations as they get to that place of you know 100 million 200 million dollars and then and then the leaders get tired and so they decide let's just sell the company yeah no it's a drain it's a drain and it's a it's a slog so i think i was reading some of your um work earlier and i think another concept that came up in there that i thought was really interesting and important um when when you look at strategic work is the is the the need to focus external um and i think a lot of teams end up getting so sort of internally focused and navel gazing around what their business is doing how do you help or, or how does a team you know maintain or develop a focus for external uh, when it comes to developing strategies. It's funny. I just, I just met with a client over the weekend. He just took a, he took on the president president job. It's a, it's a retail company. Mm-hmm. It's a great company. They're doing great work, and they have a very particularly unique customer niche that they serve. And he was all excited about everything he was telling me and uh, what they're up to and the exciting growth plans and great things on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And not once did he mention their target customer. <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah. Happens to be female. Yeah. And I said, who, who is she and where is her voice? Get out there in your stores. 
Yeah. Get out there in, watch her, listen to her, talk to her. Where is her voice? How is her voice shaping your decision making? And it's astounding to me how many people, the voice of the customer is, a, it's a data set, it's an insight, it's a, you know, some analytic yeah. aggregate, but, but it's not a real person. And if you are not out there shopping your competitors, listening to your customers in your where your customers and your people interact mm -hmm. on the phone, listening into customer service calls or in your channels or in your warehouses yeah. or, or, or watching how people are metabolizing what you do, your service or your product. You are forfeiting one of the most richest data sets that could ever you could ever have to inform your yeah. choices. If you don't know what your competitor moves are, if you don't know at the point of decision what one of your customers or consumers is doing when they choose between you or somebody else, it is so common. I'm sure you've seen it too, Bruce, where the thing you think you're selling is not what your customer's buying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? You may be selling an interesting solution. They're buying a cool version of a cheap product Yeah, or vice versa. And yeah. so absent that information, you're going to scale on a lie. You're going to grow yourself on top of a false truth or a partial truth that eventually will topple you. Yeah. No, at some, at some point, you're going to make a poor decision, right? Because you're going to be basing it, basing that decision on a set of assumptions or an understanding or a frame that is just not not really <laughs> correct and not really in line with what the market is. It's, it's completely flawed. Yeah. And, and the dangerous thing is, if you've done something really, really right, that flaw can go on for a long time. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a, a false sense of security. <laughs> and, 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 and you think the market's rewarding you. Yeah. You think yeah. that top revenue growth and... No. You're, I mean, typically, at that point, it's your sales force defining the strategy. Whatever they're selling, that's the strategy. Yeah. And you're, you, can go, you can go years on that partial truth or that falsehood yeah. before you hit a headwind or you hit a ditch and you realize, oh, crap. Yeah. We, we took the wrong exit about 80 miles ago mm -hmm. and yep. have been driving on the wrong road for two years and we have no idea where we went wrong. Yeah, totally mm -hmm. lost. No, no idea how to recover. Uh, unfortunately, I, have to, yeah, I think I think we've both seen it several times. And yeah, I think that that whole kind of muscle around how to think strategically, how to bring in you know strategic insights, understanding you know competition, understanding core customer, and really you know being decisive about that stuff. It's hard, you know. I, I get it. It's not it's not easy, but it is the element of what a leadership team is really doing in terms of guiding the company. You're absolutely right. It's really really hard work, but you know what? It's also your job. So learn to do it right. Yeah. So it's it's our uh, when we do our rising to power that research on executives assuming higher altitudes. You know, we've known for 20 years that more than half of them fail in the first 18 months. That was the reason we wrote the book, because we wanted to understand why are they so ill-prepared? How could they be labeled as high potential rock stars in the middle and suddenly go become a disaster at the top within a year? And we wanted to find out what that was. And so often they all, I mean, so many in our research said they were not prepared yeah. for the challenges of the of the highest altitudes of their organizations. And so the you know the answer is get them ready in the middle. Start preparing people for broader responsibilities in the middle so that when you need to push them up, they're prepared. They don't bring the middle with them uh, and then bring the top down. Yeah. But it's, it's astounding to you can if you wait till your first assignment as vice president to begin your preparation to be a vice president, you're you're probably not going to do too well. Yeah, you're 6 months too late. <laughs> At a minimum. Yeah. Well, yeah. Ron, this has been a pleasure. We're going to hit time here. I'm sure there's probably three or four episodes <laughs> <laughs> we could do on these topics. If people want to get more information about you, about Navalin, about Rising to Power, what's the best way to get more information? 
Yeah, come, so if you want to keep chatting, come visit. We're at Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. We have great, great videos and white papers and articles, and our books are all there. So come. Uh, we have like a great blog. We have a free quarterly magazine you can sign up for uh, that has you know content information about all these all these issues. Uh, we have a free ebook on leading transformation. So our playbook on within between among is available at navalent.com/transformation. If you want to check that out, or if you're in the middle of guiding transformation, you can use it as your sort of companion accompaniment. I'm also on Twitter at Ron Carucci, and I'm also on LinkedIn. So please keep in touch. Perfect, Ron. I'll make sure that all of those uh, links and handles are in the show notes so people can get through and, and reach you. Um, thank you again for taking the time. This has been a pleasure. I've learned a lot. Great discussion. Bruce, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.